This episode is sponsored by Overcast, a better podcast app than whatever you're using right now. Unless it's Overcast. Get Overcast for free in the App Store. They stand seemingly at the edge of the world. Slender, soaring sentinels. Defiant blades plunged into the land, challenging seas, emboldening sailors. Literal beacons of hope. Built where no one builds, and manned by undaunted souls. A lighthouse is more than just a tower with a light. It's a symbol. Of salvation. Fortitude. Defiance. Altruism. Their business is sacrifice and isolation. Their keepers giving up human contact to give some to those whose safety depends on it. Automation has taken over most lighthouses still in commission. But keeping the light prior to automation was not a job for the faint of heart. It required toughness, resilience, fortitude, and a touch of stoicism. It was a job of routines, labor, and believe it or not, teamwork. Rarely was there a lighthouse kept by just one person, or often three or four. Like the towers themselves, keepers had to weather all manner of harsh conditions, which led to a rather grueling existence. The stress of lightkeeping was enormous. Lives depended on it. The smallest mistake or accident could be catastrophic. And despite their steadfast nature, this stress found ways to creep into some folks. Being on what feels like the edge of the world takes its toll. The stress is met with sheer willpower. But sometimes, that willpower buckled. And like some lighthouses against the full might of the ocean, it would shatter, topple, and the light would go out. Tales of madness, disappearances, and unquiet souls have found refuge in the darkened, hollow, decaying towers, even when they were still in use. For despite the service they provide, despite the will of those providing it, darkness reigns at the foot of the lighthouse. So says a Japanese proverb. What horrors have their walls witnessed? What horrors do they still contain? One often finds more questions than answers when searching in the darkness at the foot of the lighthouse. We're exploring haunted lighthouses on this first episode of 2018's Blurry Photo! everyone, I'm your host, David Flora. Welcome to the show and welcome to Blurry Photober, the magical time of the year when scaring children is actually encouraged. And speaking of scaring children, don't forget, I'll be doing a live show with Hysteria 51 later this month. Wednesday, October 24th, 7pm at Otherworld Theatre in Chicago. I'll be kicking off the night with an episode and Hysteria 51 will follow up with a show of their own and there shan't be a sad face in the house the whole of the evening. 
please come out and show us some love if you can. I know I would be pleased as punch to see you there, and I'll have some bits of swag to give away, like stickers and magnets and pins and such. You don't have to come for me. You can absolutely come for the swag. I don't mind. But I hope to see you there either way. Again, October 24th, 7 p.m. at Otherworld Theater, which is at 3914 North Clark Street. That's just a couple blocks north of Wrigley Field. Find the link to tickets on the Blurry Photos Facebook page, or if you can't or have questions, please send me a Facebook or Twitter message or an email. I'll be happy to answer. I got a fun one here for you. I've picked out a small handful of lighthouses that have creepy and or mysterious tales associated with them, and I'll take you through them one at a time, giving a brief history and discussing what supernatural chicanery is reported there. I'm only going to cover a few for this episode, and believe me, there are a bunch. Almost every lighthouse has some kind of supernatural tale or ghost story attached to it, so I won't be getting them all in this episode. But if you like it, I can certainly put another one together in the future and hit more creepy spots. So don your oil skins, wipe down your fresnels, and trim your wicks. We've got some strange lights to tend to. Let us start in the states. In fact, the state with the most lighthouses. Do you know which one that is? Here, we'll do a multiple choice. Is it Maine, California, Michigan, or Florida? The answer is Michigan. If you think about it, the others have oceans for ships to maneuver in. Michigan is smack dab in the middle of the Great Lakes, touching everyone but Ontario in its 3,000-mile-plus coastlines. There's not quite as much room to navigate there, so ships need a little extra help, which is why there's so many lighthouses on its shores. There are plenty of lighthouses with tales of hauntings in Michigan, but the one we'll be taking a look at now is on South Manitou Island. Not too far from Traverse City, just above the pinky on the mitten, lies North and South Manitou Islands. The name Manitou comes from the Algonquin term for the fundamental life force or spirit present in everything. Chippewa mythology tells that a mother bear and her two cubs swam from Wisconsin to Michigan, but the mother bear was the only one to make it. She waited by the shore for them, but they had drowned in the unforgiving waters. While she slept, the great Manitou lifted the cubs up and made them into the islands, while the spot where the mother bear waited is known today as Sleeping Bear Dunes. One legend that ties to the location's troublesome reputation is that of the Seven Warriors. A war party from the north met a war party from the south, and only seven warriors from the south survived the onslaught. The North Party camped and celebrated on South Manitou Island. The Seven Warriors silently reached the camp that night and slaughtered almost everyone in their sleep. The survivors were stunned and unnerved the next morning and got the hell out of there in a hurry, 
thinking murderous evil spirits inhabited the islands. As ship traffic picked up in the 19th century, it became apparent how dangerous the waters around the islands could be. So the South Manitou Island Lighthouse was built in 1839 and kept by William Burton, owner of a lumbering company. Once a small port was established at the island, ships could stop and replenish supplies from the small town that grew there. As the lighthouse deteriorated and a bigger lamp was needed, it was rebuilt twice, once in 1858 and again in 1872, which currently still stands, a 104 feet or 32 meter tall whitewashed brick tower with a beacon visible at 18 miles. The lighthouse has seen its fair share of tragedies, for though they help mariners avoid danger, they aren't capable of preventing all accidents or the wrath of nature. At least 50 shipwrecks are known around the island, with countless more strewn about. Bodies would tend to wash ashore or be found frozen to wreckage nearby and buried in South Manitou's Crescent Bay Cemetery. Some ships went down with people in their holds, presumed still there to this day. Some say you can hear panicked cries of the drowned damned on stormy nights. South Manitou was said to be a stopping point for captains who had shiploads of cholera victims. There are supposedly mass graves where those who had died of the disease, and those who weren't quite dead yet, were tossed in and buried together. The moans of the dying are said to seep up through the sandy soil at night. A family by the name of Sheridan once lived there and kept the light. One story goes that the mother, father, and newborn were in a small sailboat that capsized while their two older children watched from the shore. None of them resurfaced, and the children wandered the coast for days looking for them. Reports of figures walking the beach and children crying, as well as footsteps, knocking, and faces in the windows of the locked and empty lighthouse have been told since. With the march of time, use of the village dwindled, as did the small community on the island. In 1958, the Coast Guard decommissioned the lighthouse. In a bit of irony, not two years after that, the Francisco Morazan hit a shoal just southwest of the island and sank. Luckily, her 15 crew made it to safety. But there's a story of a young boy several years later who went snorkeling in the wreckage of the Morazan. He didn't come back from the adventure. For years, the ranger station on the island has received calls from panicked campers saying that a boy in orange swim trunks is drowning off the coast. When someone goes to check, nothing is there but the wreckage of the Morazan beneath the waves. To the northern shoreline of Wales we go for a short one about the Point of Air Lighthouse. First built in 1776 and decommissioned in 1884, it's a 59-foot or 18-meter tall white tower that sits solemnly on Talacra Beach. 
but the snuffing of its light has not stopped its keepers from doing their job. Over the years, many witnesses say the figure of a man has been seen pacing the balcony by the lamp. Me husband and I were on Telacra Beach a couple of years ago and saw a lighthouse keeper at the top of the lighthouse in front of the glass dome. He was wearing an old-fashioned dark-worsted lighthouse keeper's coat and hat. The lighthouse was locked and chained. We were on different parts of the beach when we spotted him and spoke about this image when we caught each other up. He was there for quite a while. It was a sunny day, no mist about. No footprints around the lighthouse steps or tire tracks on the beach. No one else seemed to be looking at the lighthouse, so we don't know if we were the only ones to see it. We have seen something there too. It was summer the first time we went near the lighthouse, coming up from Presthaven Sands. We saw a figure of a man up in the top tower. He looked like he was fixing equipment. However, there was little footprints around. The padlock seemed to be fully locked, and the figure was only there briefly. He was dressed in dark green from what little we got to see. We had no idea about the rumors before we got there. I went over there once and my little puppy ran almost to the other side of the beach and had the shivers all over. I have visited Tulacra, or Point of Air Lighthouse, as it is officially known, several times, and I have noticed that the paintwork has deteriorated somewhat but I have not seen or sensed any ghosts or strange occurrences on any of my visits. I do know that the lighthouse at New Brighton, known as Perch Rock Whirl, is supposed to be haunted. A team of paranormal investigators from North Wales visited the lighthouse recently with a medium who claimed to make contact with a 19th century man named Samuel. He had lived not far away, worked as a keeper there, and died of pneumonia in 1870. He apparently enjoyed his work there, and when asked who the monarch was in his time, he answered, Victoria. Visitors have reported feeling nauseous around the lighthouse, and one woman said her six-year-old son got sick there with a sudden case of tonsillitis. His condition improved dramatically when they returned home. An art installation of a metal figure on the balcony was placed there in 2010. The medium had asked Samuel if he liked the figure. He replied firmly, No. Back to the States, in a little jut of rock about one and a half miles off the coast of southern Maine, we stop off at Seguin Island. Commissioned by George Washington in 1795, a wooden lighthouse was completed in 1797 and then replaced twice by stone versions in 1820 and 1857. A small house for the keepers was also built onto it. With the height of the island, it stands 180 feet or 55 meters above sea level, the tallest light in Maine, and with a first-order Fresnel lens, one of only a handful in the States. Fresnel lenses were developed by a French physicist, Augustin Jean Fresnel, and are designed to catch light from a source and focus it, thus making it more powerful. First-order lenses are the largest, at around 9 feet in height, and the lower you go, the smaller they get. 
Seguin has had numerous keepers and their families in residence during its time in operation, and there are numerous tales about otherworldly goings-on there. Time after time, visitors to the island report hearing voices around them. The attached house has a lot of activity. People have claimed to suddenly be aware of someone watching them, and when they turn to look, a little girl is standing on the stairs. She apparently laughs and runs up the stairs playfully, and when followed, there's no trace of her whatsoever. Sometimes people hear what sounds like a ball bouncing upstairs, or just the laughing itself. Others hear the obligatory footsteps going up the tower steps, even though it's locked with no one else around. Automation came late to the lighthouse in 1985, but the spirits did not give up the light willingly. The story goes that some Coast Guardsmen were dispatched there to pack up the items and load up the furniture in the now-retired lighthouse. It took some time to do, and they ended up staying the night there. In the middle of the night, one was awakened by a strange-looking man dressed in oilskins, standing at the foot of the bed. Shaking his head and looking worried, the man said, Don't take the furniture. Please leave my home alone before disappearing right before the guardsman's eyes. Obviously, the guardsman ran into another room where he would not be alone, and the next day, when the crew had loaded things onto the island's tram and were lowering it to the dock, the chain snapped, sending everything tumbling down to the water below. But perhaps the most legendary of tales associated with Seguin is that of an unnamed lightkeeper, his wife, and a piano. Dismayed at the boredom his wife was experiencing on the lonely, fog-wrapped island, he decided to bring a little joy into her life by bringing a piano over from the mainland. Not the easiest task, he managed to fight and wrestle the piano up the steep tramway and finally into the house. His wife loved it and immediately set to playing. However, she only had sheet music to one piece. Apparently, it was harder to get sheet music up the tram than a piano. And she played it over and over and over. And his wife, in her joy, would wake bright and early and rush for her toy. And then, oh, the noise. Oh, the noise, 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 noise. And he grew to hate it. The noise, 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 noise. He heard it day and night. In fact, he couldn't escape it. In the tower, in the kitchen even in his head when she'd retired for the evening. And finally, he snapped. Grabbing an axe one day, he rushed into the parlor and brought it down in the middle of the keyboard. He chopped and chopped while his mortified wife watched. And then he turned to her. He brought the axe down with the same ferocity onto his helpless wife. And when the bloodlust wore off and he'd realized what he'd done, he took his own life. No one is sure whether he shot himself, jumped into the sea, or used the axe on his own skull. But that was the end of his tenure on Seguin Island. 
while no documentation has ever been found to prove this event. Some folks say on particularly foggy days and quiet nights, you can still hear the old tune plunked out on a piano that's nowhere to be found. coast on a hill at the north side of the entrance to Yaquina Bay, just south of Newport, Oregon, sits a little two-story clapboard house with a lighthouse tower rising from the roof. Not your typical tower, if you were to imagine a run-of-the-mill lighthouse, then chopped off the very top where the lantern room starts and set that on top of a simple rectangular house, that's what the Yaquina Bay lighthouse looks like. Built in 1871, it was kept by Civil War veteran Captain Charles H. Purse and his family. In one of those classic, yep, that sounds about right, moves, the lighthouse board made the decision to build another lighthouse in what they thought would be a better spot, four miles north at Yaquina Head. In 1873, the other light was lit and the Yaquina Bay Lighthouse was snuffed in 1874. Captain Purse and his family moved up to the new one and continued keeping the light, and Yaquina Bay Lighthouse was abandoned. It almost saw service as a rail line's terminus in 1873, but the line was never finished, so it remained empty. The Army Corps of Engineers used it for a while between 1888 and 1896, during which it was royally effed by a lightning strike at one point. From 1906 to 1933, it was used by what would become the U.S. Coast Guard and then left in disrepair once again. It was almost raised when a movement came about to save it, and in 1956, it was declared a historical site in the county. It was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1974 and was actually relit in 1996, privately maintained by the Coast Guard, and is open to the public for tours. An old, abandoned lighthouse, used off and on since the 1800s, you say? Might as well say an old, abandoned ghost factory, ghosted off and on since Ghostine 80 Ghost. Well, there have been some tales told of this neglected little light hut, and interestingly enough, most have come out of a straight-up story written by Miss Lishan Miller for Pacific Monthly, Volume 11, 1899. I'll read you a bit of an abridged version. Situated at Yaquina, on the coast of Oregon, is an old deserted lighthouse. It stands upon a promontory that juts out dividing the bay from the ocean and is exposed to every wind that blows. Its weather-beaten walls are wrapped in mystery. Of an afternoon when the fog comes drifting in from the sea and completely envelops the lighthouse and then stops in its course as if its object had been attained, it is the loneliest place in the world. At such times, those who chance to be in the vicinity hear a moaning sound, like the cry of one in pain, and sometimes a frenzied call for help pierces the death-like stillness of the waning day. 
Far out at sea, ships passing in the night are often guided in their course by a light that gleams from the lantern tower, where no lamp is ever trimmed. In the days when Newport was but a handful of cabins, roughly built and flanked by an Indian camp, across the bar there sailed a sloop, grotesquely rigged and without a name. The arrival of a vessel was a rare event, and by the time the stranger had dropped anchor abreast the village, the whole population were gathered on the strip of Sandy Beach to welcome her. She was manned by a swarthy crew, and her skipper was a beetle-browed ruffian with a scar across his cheek, from mouth to ear. A boat was lowered, and in it, a man about 40 years of age, accompanied by a young girl, were rowed ashore. The man was tall and dark, and his manner of speech indicated gentle breeding. He explained that the sloop's water casks were empty, and was directed to the spring that poured down the face of the yellow sandstone cliff a few yards up the beach. Issuing instructions in some heathenish, unfamiliar tongue to the boatman, he devoted himself to asking and answering questions. The sloop was bound down the coast to Coos Bay. She had encountered rough weather off the Columbia River bar and had been driven far out of her course. To the young lady, his daughter, the voyage proved most trying. She was not a good sailor. If, therefore, accommodations could be secured, he wished to leave her ashore until the return of the sloop a fortnight later. The landlady of the Abbey Hotel had a room to spare, and by the time the water casks were filled, arrangements had been completed which resulted in the transfer of the fair traveler's luggage from the sloop to the hotel. The father bade his daughter an affectionate adieu, and was rowed back to the vessel, which at once weighed anchor and sailed away in the golden dusk of the summer evening. Muriel, that was the name she gave, Muriel Trevenard, was a delicate-looking, fair-haired girl still in her teens, very sweet and sunny-tempered. She seemed to take kindly to her new environment, accepting its rude inconveniences as a matter of course, though all her own belongings testified to the fact that she was accustomed to the refinements and even luxuries of civilization. She spent many hours each day idling with a sketch block and pencil in that grassy hollow in the hill, seaward from the town, or strolled upon the beach or over the windswept uplands. The fortnight lengthened to a month, and yet no sign of the sloop or any sail rose above the horizon to southward. "'You've no cause to worry,' said the landlady. "'Your father's safe enough. No rough weather since he sailed, and as for time, a ship's time is as uncertain as a woman's temper, I've heard my own father say.' The sexist bastard. Oh, I'm not anxious, replied Muriel. Not in the least. It was in August that a party of pleasure seekers came over the coast range and pitched their tents in a grassy hollow. They were a merry company, and they were not long in discovering Muriel. Such a pretty girl, exclaimed Cora May, who was herself so fair that she could afford to be generous. I'm sure she does not belong to anybody out here. We must coax her to come out to our camp. But the girl needed a little coaxing. She found these light-hearted young people a pleasant interruption, and she was enthusiastically welcomed by all, young and old alike. She joined them in their ceaseless excursions and made one of the group that gathered nightly around the campfire. 
There was one, a rather serious-minded youth, who speedily constituted himself her cavalier. How's that for a $20 sentence? He was always at hand to help her into the boat, to bait her hook when they went fishing, and to carry her shawl or book or sketch block, and she accepted these attentions as she seemed to accept all else, naturally and sweetly. The Cape Foulweather Light had just been completed, and the house upon the bluff above Newport was deserted. Some member of the camping party proposed one Sunday afternoon that they pay it a visit. We've seen everything else there is to see, remarked Cora May. It's just an ordinary house with a lantern on top, objected Muriel. You can get a good view of it from the bay. Besides, it's probably locked up. Somebody has the key. We can soon find out who, said Harold Welch. Who, are, are we supposed to know who Harold Welch is? Is that the guy that likes her? And we haven't anything else to do. I, I think it's the guy that likes her. Accordingly, they set out in a body to find the key weird, weird phrasing. It was in the possession of the landlady's husband who had been appointed to look after the premises. He said he had not been up there lately and seemed surprised after a mild fashion that anyone should feel an interest in an empty house, but he directed them how to reach it. You go up that trail to the top of the hill and you strike the road, but you won't find anything worth seeing after you get there. It ain't anywhere like the new light. With much merry talk and laughter, they climbed the hill and found the road, a smooth and narrow avenue overshadowed by dark young pines, winding along the hilltop to the rear of the house. It stood in a small enclosure, bare of vegetation. There was a walk paved with brick, leading from the gate around to the front, where two or three steps went up into a square porch with seats on either side. Harold Welch unlocked the door, and they went into the empty hall that echoed dismally to the sound of human voices. Rooms opened from this hallway on either hand, and in the L at the back were the kitchen, storerooms, and pantry, a door that gave egress to a narrow veranda and another shutting off the cellar. At the rear of the hall, the stairs led up to the second floor, which was divided like the first into plain square rooms, but the stairway went on, winding up to a small landing, where a window looked out to northward. Why, cried one as they crowded the landing, this house seems to be falling to pieces. He pulled out a section of paneling and it came away in his hand. Hello, what's this? Iron walls? It's hollow, said another, tapping the smooth black surface disclosed by the removal of the panel. So it is, cried the first speaker. I wonder what's behind it. Why it opens? It was a heavy piece of sheet iron, about three feet square. He moved it to one side, set it against the wall, and peered into the aperture. How mysterious, exclaimed Muriel leaning forward to look into the dark closet, whose height and depth exactly corresponded to the dimensions of the panel. It went straight back some six or eight feet, and then dropped abruptly into what seemed like a soundless well. One, more curious than the rest, crawled in and threw down lighted bits of paper. It goes to the bottom of the sea, he declared, as he backed out and brushed the dust from his clothes. Who knows what it is, or why it was built? Smugglers! suggested somebody, and they all laughed, though there was nothing particularly humorous in the remark. But they were strangely nervous and excited. There was something uncanny in the atmosphere of this deserted dwelling that oppressed them with an unaccountable sense of dread. They hurried out, leaving the dark closet open, and climbed up into the lantern tower, where no lamp has been lighted these many years. 
The afternoon, which had been flooded with sunshine, was waning in a mist that swept in from the sea and muffled the world in dull gray. Let us go home, cried Cora May. If it were clear, we might see almost China from this tower, but the fog makes me lonesome. <laughs> so they clambered down the iron ladder and descending the stairs passed out through the lower hall into the gray fog. Harold Welch stopped to lock the door, and Muriel waited for him at the foot of the steps. The lock was rusty, and he had trouble with the key. By the time he joined her, the rest of the party had disappeared around the house. "'You're kind to wait for me,' said he as they caught step on the brick pavement and moved forward. But Muriel laid her hand upon his arm. "'I, I must go back,' she said. I, I, "'I dropped my handkerchief in the hall upstairs. I must go back and get it.' They remounted the steps, and Welch unlocked the door and let her pass in. But when he would have followed, she stopped him imperiously. "'I'm going alone,' she said. "'You are not to wait. Lock the door and go on. I will come out through the kitchen.' He objected, but she was obstinate, and, perhaps because her lightest wish was beginning to be his law of life, he reluctantly obeyed her. Again the key hung in the lock— this time it took him several minutes to release it. When he reached the rear of the house, Muriel was nowhere to be seen. He called her two or three times and waited, but receiving no reply, he concluded that she had hurried out and joined the rest, whose voices came back to him from the Avenue of Pines. She had been nervous and irritable all the afternoon, so unlike herself, that he had wondered more than once if she were ill or weary of his close attendance. It occurred to him now that possibly she had taken this means to rid herself of his company. And chill yourself out, Harold Wilch. He hurried on, for it was growing cold and the fog was thickening to a rain. He had just caught up with the stragglers of the party, and they were beginning to chafe him at being alone, when the somber stillness of the darkening day was rent by a shriek so wild and weird that they who heard it felt the blood freeze suddenly in their veins. <laughs> They shrank involuntarily closer and looked at each other with blanched cheeks and startled eyes. Before anyone found voice, it came again. This time it was a cry for help, thrice repeated in quick succession. Muriel! Where is Muriel? demanded Welch, his heart leaping into sudden fear. Why, you ought to know, cried Cora May. We left her with you! They hurried toward the deserted house. She went back to get a handkerchief, explained Welch. She told me not to wait, and I locked the door and came on. Locked her in that horrid place? Why'd you do it? exclaimed Cora indignantly. She said she'd come out by way of the kitchen, replied he. She could not. The door is locked, and the key is broken off in the lock, said another. I noticed it when we were rummaging around in there. They began to call encouragingly. Muriel, we're coming. Don't be afraid. But they got no reply. Oh, let us hurry, urged Cora. Perhaps she's fainted with fright. <laughs> In a very few minutes, they were pouring into the house and looking and calling through the lower rooms. Then upstairs, and there, upon the floor in the upper chamber, where the gray light came in through the curtainless windows, they found a pool of warm, red blood. 
There were blood drops in the hall and on the stairs that led up to the landing, and by the iron closet, they picked up a blood-stained handkerchief. But there was nothing else. The iron door had been replaced and the paneling closed, and try as they might, they could not open it. They were confronted by an apparent tragedy, appalled by a fearful mystery, and they could do nothing. Nothing. They returned to the village and gave the alarm, and reinforced, came back and renewed the hopeless search with lanterns. They ransacked the house again and again from tower to cellar. They scoured the walls in the vain delusion that she might have escaped from the house and wandered off in the fog. But they found nothing. Nor ever did. Save the blood drops on the stairs and the little handkerchief. It will be a dreadful blow to her father, remarked the landlady of the Abbey Hotel. I don't ever want to be the one to break it to him. And she had her wish. For the sloop, nor any of its crew, ever again sailed into Yaquina Bay. As time went by, the story was forgotten by all but those who joined in that weary search for the missing girl. But to this day, it's said the blood stains are dark upon the floor in that upper chamber. And on some gloomy days, when the fog rolls slowly and sticks heavily to the landscape, they say the dismal mists echo with unearthly screams of terror. Miss Miller's story was meant as nothing more than fiction, but its popularity has caused the details to meld into some fake lore for the area, and different versions are whispered here and there and told around campfires to this day. Sing you a song, a good song of the sea. Away, Ryo! I'll sing you a song if you'll sing it with me. We're bound for the Royal Grand, and it's away, Ryo! Away, Ryo! It's fare you well, my pretty young girls, and we're bound for the Royal Grand. We'll man the good captain and run her around. Away, Ryo! We'll haul up the anchor to this jolly sound, cause we're bound for the Royal Grand. And it's away, Ryo! Away! It's fare you well, my pretty young girls, and we're bound for the Royal Grand. Hey, anchors awaiting, the sails are all set. Back to the East Coast we go in bonnie old Maryland in Chesapeake Bay. Located at the entrance to the Potomac River, our last lighthouse, Point Lookout, was built in 1830 and manned by Keeper James Davis. Unfortunately, and maybe due to the wretched swamp-like conditions, he died of disease a few months later, and his daughter Anne assumed duties there. With the onset of the Civil War, a hospital was built there in 1862, and eventually a Union prison with such deplorable conditions that more than 3,000 soldiers died. 
the lighthouse was decommissioned in 1966 and is now owned by the state. While some keepers scoffed at the idea of anything supernatural, others swore they were not alone there. One state employee in particular, Gerald Sword, related a number of odd experiences he had while staying there in the late 70s. The kitchen wall started to glow one night for about 10 minutes. Every night for two weeks, he heard someone snoring in the kitchen. During storms, he often heard voices outside and inside the lighthouse. He frequently heard someone walking up and down the hallway and up and down the stairs. He heard loud voices outside. He would search and could never find anyone. His dog was locked in the screen-in porch in the evenings. One night he heard the dog barking and came outside to find the dog outside the porch, but the door was still locked from the inside. He smelled an odor in the living room. He experienced lights turning on and off and doors banging. There were actually investigations after that, including seances and EVP recordings. Mediums were said to feel very sick there and felt presences in the bedrooms and basement and other things mediums experience in a house they know to be haunted. The Point Lookout State Park itself opens a few days a year for ghost tours and preservation fundraising. Some of the EVPs are available to listen to on their website, and I'll play a couple for you now. Supposedly a child saying, come out and fight. Someone breathily saying, Mary. That one's pretty clear. Female saying, help. That one's a scream that the investigators apparently didn't hear. Do people really scream like that? A male voice saying, My home? And now the classic otherworldly instructions to leave. That one is said to be a demonic voice saying, get out or perish. There's a very breathy get out for you. That one's a pretty angry get out, and obviously it was played back to back to back, so you could really get that sense of uh, what to do when you're in the house, which is get out of the house. As with many EVPs, the quality is not that great, and it's hard to decipher the words until you hear what someone else thinks. 
But Point Lookout in Maryland is said to be pretty spookily dookily. So if you visit, make sure to take your recording device with you. See if you pick up anything. Voices on recorders may echo a forgotten past, but the lighthouses still stand, refusing to let history be forgotten. Automation long ago replaced the need for lightkeepers in many houses along the coasts, but it couldn't replace that indomitable spirit, that dedication and will which was painstakingly poured into the stones over the years. It couldn't banish the darkness of so much isolation, loneliness, and creeping madness which festered in those stout towers. And perhaps not even the constant, long stretch of an electric lantern can reach the grim, dark bleakness locked between the stones. That's haunted lighthouses in a tall, unlit, abandoned nutshell. And now for my art installation standing atop your empty lighthouse, puns! There's one lighthouse I couldn't bring myself to include. Its builders were just too embarrassed by it after it was constructed. The shape was square, the steps were slanted, and the lantern room was only a few feet tall. They hid in shame and distress, and it was left abandoned, forever known as Chagrin Lighthouse. A clean, clear, and focused embodiment of the now and forever scent. Aged and vibrant, bright and sophisticated. The smell of the sea, focused by a new beveled glass bottle for a continuous ocean misting spray. Simple, elegant, crystal clear. Fresnel number no. five by Fea Fontoon. Hope some of you guys can pick up a bottle of that new perfume by the uh, new sponsor, Fresnel number no. five. You smell like the sea all day. <laughs> Oh, boy. Thanks for listening to this fearsome folio of fried houses. And if you're ever in the area, many of them are either still standing or open to the public, or both. Maybe you can catch a glimpse of a haint or two on a visit. Don't forget to tell others about blurry photos. Word of mouth is great, and I see people asking for podcast recommendations all the time on social media. So spread the gospel when you can. Like the page on Facebook, follow on Twitter, Blurry underscore photos, Instagram and YouTube are Blurry Photos Podcast. And please give the show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your catcher of choice. There are multiple ways to support the show more if you're feeling generous and appreciate my work. I have a Patreon where you can sign up for monthly rewards. $5 a month gets you an extra episode. $10 gets you access to a live stream I do once a month, telling behind-the-scenes stuff and reading spooky stories. They're a lot of fun. And $30 gets you all that stuff, plus I make a Lego minifig of you and send it to you for your own shenanigans with pictures and such. 
You can also buy me a coffee on coffee, ko-fi.com slash blurry photos. Big thanks to Emily for buying me one just last week. Thank you, Emily. If you've missed any extrasodes from past Patreon months, I just updated the list on the archives page on the website. And if you'd like access to any, just donate $5 via my PayPal donate button for each one you'd like to hear, and I'll send you the link. That's on blurryphotos.org archives. Scroll down the page till you find them. I think that'll about do it for this first episode of Blurry Photober. I have been David. I really hope I said Yaquina right because Oregon hates it when I mispronounce names. Flora. Till next time. <laughs>